Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIconf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I spoke with Kartik Hosanagar. He is a professor of technology and digital business, as well as professor of marketing at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. More importantly for this episode, Kartik just released a book called A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence. It's a very interesting tour through the recent evolution of AI applications and which draws heavily from his own personal experience at the intersection of business and technology. So we had a great conversation spanning many topics, including the unanticipated consequences that algorithm designers should be aware of, the trade-offs that algorithm designers need to weigh, this whole notion of managing risk in machine learning, and then Kartik has proposed a bill of rights for users impacted by the growing power and sophistication of algorithms. Many of the topics that Kartik and I will be discussing in this episode are actually going to be covered at the upcoming Strata Data London conference in late April and early May. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Kartik Hosanagar, Professor of Technology and Digital Business, as well as Professor of Marketing at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome to the Data Show. Ben, thanks for having me. So, uh, Kartik, uh, you're an academic, but uh, you've also uh, started a couple of companies. So why don't you describe uh, some of the companies you've started, particularly since uh, they're both relevant to our audience who are primarily interested in uh, data and AI? Yeah, sure. So um, I have always had an interest in entrepreneurship. So when I was a PhD student, I started an e-commerce company that briefly played around with that for a little under a year. It had some early traction, but didn't go far. Later, I set up a wireless broadband company, which again was a brief uh, flirtation with it. But my most serious uh, attempt with that, uh, with startups, was a company called Yodel, which was a marketing platform for small businesses. And this was around 2005 when consumers had uh, started to move away from yellow pages and started to look for local businesses online, in particular search engines like Google. And so for small businesses, it meant that you're no longer cutting a check and asking for a half-page ad on the yellow pages, but instead now you have to figure out you know, what keywords to bid on, how much to bid on all these keywords, uh, algorithmic capabilities that a typical small business doesn't have. And so we created a platform uh, that would essentially given a business, identify what kinds of keywords are most relevant for it. How do you bid on this? So it was a combination of natural language processing algorithms, data-driven optimization algorithms and the like, uh, to help them bid more intelligently um, and, and sort of improve their ROI online. And actually, to put your academic work in context, as I scan through some of your recent papers, this interest in uh, marketing, media, and advertising particularly the applications of data science, machine learning, and optimization runs through your work. Is that correct? That's right. The common theme of all my work is essentially this 
combination of data science, um, optimization, machine learning, you know, all under this umbrella of data science, as you said. I've looked at a number of different areas ranging from online ad auctions and consumer behavior on the internet to uh, design of recommender algorithms and how they drive choice. And more recently, looking at interpretability in uh, automated decisions and uh, machine learning decisions and so on. But the common theme on all of this work has been data-driven decision-making and, and I guess, uh, you know, what we call data science today. So you're a professor. You are also an entrepreneur advising companies on the side. And somehow you found time to write a new book, which I was fortunate enough to get an advanced copy. I highly recommend it to our listeners. It's called A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence, How Algorithms Are Shaping Our Lives and How We Can Stay in Control. So uh, Karthik, there have been a few books that have come out aimed at a popular audience, basically uh, explaining this new world of AI and algorithms. So what possessed you to write a new book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I kind of feel like, you know, um, AI and algorithms are so fundamental to all our lives, um, you know, and, and technology itself has become so central to all our lives. So whether it's, you know, what products people buy, say on Amazon or you know, what media they consume on YouTube or Netflix or Google News, or even who people date through Tinder and Match.com. Algorithms are driving a lot of our choices, and they're also entering our workplace and, in fact, making even life and death decisions. You know, we, we know about courtrooms in the U.S. where judges are asked to consult algorithms before making sentencing decisions. You know, doctors are asked to consult algorithms before making treatment decisions. So they couldn't be any more important, but yet they're so misunderstood. I think public doesn't, uh, you know, have the right mental models for how these systems work. And I've kind of seen two kinds of books. There are either the technically solid books that are often written only for the engineers, but aren't accessible for lay people, or people or books that are written for lay audiences, but you know, are often written by people who are themselves not technologists. And so it's very high level, uh, 80,000 feet kind of perspective, not going into details because sometimes, you know, and sometimes some of those details are even wrong. And I wanted to try and bridge that gap, you know, to try and open up the black box for people and help them understand, you know, how these algorithms how function, how does AI work, but also what's at stake because we are starting to hear recently about things like algo biases and AI bias and AI fairness and all these issues. So to help them sort of uh, peel the layers and understand the nuances, why it's so challenging and what can we all do to stay in control with uh, automated machine decisions, which have a lot of promise, but also come with challenges. And actually, you, you have a unique position because you sit at the intersection of business and technology, particularly with your work at Wharton. So I think that you are able to kind of bridge that gap between uh, the business audience on the one hand and making sure that what you're writing about is grounded in actual technology. And, and speaking of which, uh, you devote a chapter to what you call the law of unanticipated consequences. So give us some examples and describe why you decided to uh, devote a chapter in your book to this topic. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of examples, uh, one of the examples I provide, I start off that chapter with is the uh, Google 
tool which is uh, essentially recommending search queries as we uh, type in um, queries. Autocomplete. Autocomplete, exactly. And I talk about how, you know, obviously it's so universally used, well understood, uh, offers amazing value. But, you know, there have been instances where autocomplete sometimes, as you type in stuff, starts offering some crazy suggestions and highly offensive suggestions. So, for example, you know, uh, in 2016, a, a writer, uh, a journalist mentioned how if you t- start typing in our Jews, uh, you know, obviously the first few suggestions are somewhat innocuous suggestions like our Jews are race, our Jews white, but then there was this suggestion, our Jews evil. And then similarly, you start typing in women should, and one of the suggestions were, was women should stay at home and uh, things like that. And clearly there was not only this issue that weird suggestions was coming up, but, you know, it was also directing people and pointing them towards uh, content and websites that uh, promote hateful content. And that's one example. There have been so many other examples. Uh, Last year, there was the story of the algorithms that are used in courtrooms in the U.S. uh, to guide judges with sentencing decisions and how those algorithms have a race bias. Um, There was also a story late last year about Amazon trying to build algorithms to do resume screening because, of course, Amazon gets a million plus job applications and they can't have human beings sift through that many resumes. So it makes sense to automate it. But they found that these algorithms, you know, had a gender bias. And, you know, Amazon was savvy enough to run those tests and then decided not to roll it out. But there are many companies that are doing this and are not recognizing it. And so these are all examples of unanticipated consequences of algorithmic decisions. Essentially, the idea that you're trying to make a decision to optimize for some technical requirement or business need, and you have some sort of a golden metric and accuracy or something that you're trying to go after. And, you know, often as engineers, we are so focused on that one metric and evaluating algorithms along that one metric, uh, whether it's prediction accuracy or something else, we often fail to see that there are other things that are going on in parallel. And so the unanticipated consequences can be things related to fairness, bias, uh, privacy, you know, any of these other things uh, that are often not metrics on which algorithms are assessed, but it's an unanticipated consequence. You didn't expect it, and now you have to deal with it. And and uh, to be clear, as I interpret this, uh, Kartik, is it's to be taken somewhat literally, this notion of unanticipated consequences, in the sense that the, we're not talking about systems under attack uh, from an adversary. They're just uh, systems that were designed to do, uh, were optimized for one thing, but failed to anticipate the consequences of uh, what happens when you deploy it and you fail to check for other things. That's exactly right. And in fact, I borrow this term of unanticipated consequences from something that has received some attention from uh, sociologists. And within sociology, uh, you know, there's even a taxonomy of unanticipated consequences. Oh, yeah, I, so, love, I, love the, I love that taxonomy in your book. Oh, thanks. Yeah, so, so that taxonomy is, you know, one that they talk about is unforeseen benefits. That is something that is uh, unexpected and it's a pleasant surprise. So a great example of that would be the drug Viagra, which was developed to lower blood pressure, but then you had this unexpected side effect of uh, sexual arousal in men. And then it got used for another purpose. Uh, and sometimes algorithms have that as well. Um, but that's not my, uh, a big focus of my book. Those are great. We'll gladly take them. But I focus on the other two types of unanticipated consequences. And there are 
what are known as perverse results and unexpected drawbacks. And perverse results are essentially situations where something worsens precisely the outcome that it's trying to improve. And the example I provide in the book is uh, what's known as the cobra effect in uh, colonial India. And the um, story there is that the British government wanted to address the menace of cobras in India's capital, uh, Delhi. And so they announced a bounty for every dead snake. And the idea was that, hey, this is going to reduce the cobra population. And and indeed, there were people bringing in cobras uh, and sort of collecting the bounty. But as it turns out, it also resulted in people farming cobras because they now could produce the snakes and collect the bounties. So rather than uh, curbing uh, the cobra population, it was encouraging people to breed more cobras. Uh, So that's a perverse result where you worsen exactly what you're trying to improve. And it happens. I mean, all of us who've designed algorithms uh, have experienced it in some way or the other. Even at Yodel, the company I mentioned earlier, where we were trying to, uh, you know, bid optimally, reduce costs, improve the ROI. You know, there were these situations where we didn't factor in the complexity of the overall system. And we were bidding coincidentally for four or five of our clients who were all bidding on the same keyword, and we were creating this bidding war among them and making it incredibly expensive for them uh, to uh, bid and to get clicks online. And then we realized, wow, we had an algorithm that was optimizing for each client, but was not accounting for the fact that we were creating a bidding war uh, without looking at the system effects. Uh, and you know, and the last kind of uh, unanticipated consequence I mentioned in the book are essentially what uh, I mentioned as unexpected drawbacks. And that's where, uh, you know, something, uh, a negative outcome that you didn't expect, which you weren't focused on happen. And, and a good example of that would be Facebook trying to replace human editors with an algorithm editor for its trending news stories. And we've all heard of what happened. And the backstory there was they had human editors curating the, the trending news stories but they, these human editors were being accused of having a political bias that they were left-leaning. And so Facebook said, hey, you know, algorithms can't be accused of having a political bias, so we'll roll them out. And they did indeed confirm that the algorithms did not have a political bias. But then uh, the unexpected drawback was they weren't explicitly testing for can it detect fake news stories. And so fake news stories started getting into the trending news a lot more often than when they had human editors. And the rest is history, but that's an example of something they just didn't anticipate and then they had to deal with later. And I think to some extent, Karthik, this whole thread of discussion can be traced to the fact that maybe uh, even in the best, best case scenario, you have a system that you trained and you followed all the right steps to train your model and things like this. Do you think part of the reason that we get into this fix is that people also kind of... Uh, overestimate what a model can do when a model is only trained for one very narrow thing. Yeah, I think we're all guilty where we kind of see uh, the model do really well within our, you know, validation or test data sets. And we think, you know, it's all going to work out. And then you deploy it in the real world. And then, you know, there's the real world changes. Exactly. <laughs> the world's changing around us and we don't know it. And then that's dragging the model performance down slowly but surely over time. But then there's also other issues. There are issues that we just traditionally in algorithm design, we haven't thought of. You know, If you're designing a credit scoring algorithm, 
you know, one of the first things you test is maybe the accuracy of the credit scoring algorithm, but not fairness or bias of the algorithm. Or if you're doing resume screening, you're not naturally kind of testing for the bias of the algorithm. So I think, you know, some of it is just that we are optimizing one metric, but uh, in the real world, you know, there's actually, uh, you know, any system affects so many different things and we're looking for a balance of everything and not just looking for the one algorithm that maximizes, say, average accuracy. But then when it's wrong, it could be wrong in very unjust ways or in very bad ways. And so, uh, you know, we need to think more holistically, but that's not how we design algorithms traditionally. So another chapter in your book that I found interesting is the one dedicated to the predictability resilience paradox. So why don't you explain what you mean by this to our listeners? Yeah, so that's an uh, idea that I proposed in the book, which, you know, I think may be somewhat controversial. Not not every data scientist will agree with it, but uh, I'll, I'll, I stand by it. And it's this idea that I have, which is that I don't think algorithms can be simultaneously highly predictable and highly resilient at the same time. So uh, let me clarify and unpack what that means. So if you look at, you know, say how we built AI systems in the 80s, where you had, let's say, an expert system and you had a fixed set of rules that this expert system was following. Uh, Say uh, a medical diagnosis system. You interviewed a doctor and the doctor gave you a bunch of rules on how they diagnose how something is common cold versus the flu versus pneumonia and so on. And so you captured all of that knowledge into a set of rules. What you have is a system that's highly predictable because it's governed by some very precise set of rules. But these systems, in hindsight, weren't the most resilient. And what I mean by that is that when they encountered a corner case, a case that a rule does not explicitly address, they simply don't know what to do and the system fails. And so in a sense, the system is highly predictable but not very resilient. Now, on the flip side, you have more modern machine learning system, deep learning systems where you just give it truckloads of data and say, here's all the data, now go learn. These systems are amazingly resilient because as long as you've got a lot of data, they've seen all kinds of cases and they can handle that. And even if they see a completely new case, they'll fail and they learn from that failure and immediately the next time they're better off. And so these systems are highly resilient but they're not highly predictable because, you know, you can't say for sure exactly how the system will behave in every single situation or every single input. And so now you have a system that is highly resilient, but not very predictable. And so what I argue is that you can't have both in an algorithm. So for a algorithm designer, at some level, there's a trade-off. You're trying to pick between the two. Uh, and there are some settings where we... Uh, are willing to trade off some predictability for more resilience and settings where we're willing to accept some deterioration in performance in return for some predictability or, uh, you know, maybe some other solutions such as interpreting. So a couple of things. The first is uh, sometimes I question how resilient some of our modern systems are. You know, like for, like for example, in computer vision, right? So they're known to fail with just a few yep. pixels off. And secondly, there's now, uh, so one of the trending topics in ML research is uh, explainability. Yeah. So then you, you might think uh, one of your black boxes, I don't know, based on some 
neural network architecture or combination of neural network and Bayesian learning. And then you have another system that somehow attempts to explain how that system works. So yeah. then uh, are we, uh, are, does that bring us closer to, uh, I mean, none of what I described is set or ready to go, but are those, are those steps in the right direction? Yeah, there are steps in the right direction. Now, if you buy my thesis that you can't have uh, predictability and resilience at the same time, then the question is, how do we uh, deal with that in a practical so sense? Yeah, there's always going to be, so there's going to be a, a knob where you have to choose between the two. And, exactly. uh, and, so, and, and honestly, what your, your premise is kind of uh, reasonable, right? So considering that we don't know how the human brain works, right? So, Yeah, yeah. I think the human brain, yeah. You know, I can't explain to you a lot of decisions I make, Ben. Or just, you know, the neuro- neuroscientists don't exactly know uh, the, the inner workings of the brain yet, right? So, But, uh, uh, but it's obviously a very uh, a great black box, right? It is a black box. And the question is, how do we deal with that? Uh, if we want to have, let's say, a driverless car, we can't hope that we program in all the rules that this driverless car will have to use because then we'll have predictable system. But then, you know, maybe it won't be resilient. Maybe it'll eventually encounter a situation where there's no rule and it'll do something crazy. Um, and so, right. you know, then the option is we go with neural nets. But then again, hey, with neural nets, we don't know what exactly is going on. So what does one do? I think there's two uh, practical approaches we could use. One is quite simply redundancy. And this is simply the idea that you don't have just one system. You have a main system, but you have a lot of backups. And so in a driverless car, the motion planning system, which is essentially deciding, you know, when the car can switch lanes, when can it turn left, when should it brake, and all of that stuff, you could have a neural net doing a lot of this stuff, but you might also have a set of rules in there so that you know, let's say you're approaching a stop sign and the neural net is looking at the image and deciding whether to stop. But we, as we know, if the stop sign looks a little bit different from the tra- training data set, then it might not recognize the stop sign. In fact, there was a study that shows that, hey, if you just put a post-it note on a stop sign, uh, some of these driverless cars can't recognize it because it doesn't look like any stop sign in the database. But then you have a rule-based system kick in that knows exactly all of the stop signs on all the streets in the U.S. That says, hey, there's supposed to be a stop sign here, so you stop now. So that's where I think redundancy comes in, and you kind of combine the two uh, or many approaches to try and get more safety and more predictability. And you probably, uh, that's probably uh, the case for many of the systems we have now, right? So for example, going to your... uh, self-driving car example, I can't imagine deploying that purely with, you know, deep reinforcement learning or machine learning system, right? So you would have you would have that in place. You would have the rule-based engine in place, like you said, but maybe you also have something based on control theory, right? So who knows? Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And, and then and then yeah. uh, and then Kartik, actually the who are they? The people at Mobileye, right? So they were one of the first companies that got acquired by Intel developing a driver assistance systems. So they're trying to build a system that uses cameras, but uh, they're not going to deploy unless they have a parallel system that uses LiDAR, right? So they have redundancy. And then they have this famous, they have this interesting paper. And one of the, my favorite lines in there is uh, something that goes to your point, which is, you know, in the race to develop self-driving cars, the most important metric shouldn't be 
who gets to announce the self-driving car first, right? So it has to be who has the safest, right? Right. So it's not it's not a rush to who's first, right? So who has the safest system? That's uh, that's what we should all be aiming for. Yeah, you know, any mission critical system, uh, ultimately, you know, redundancy is built into those, and I think that is the way to go. And I think you you earlier brought up the whole question of explainable AI and interpretability. I think that's the other uh, parallel and important direction, which is that uh, to the extent that we're using a lot of these so-called black boxes like neural nets, then it is indeed the case that we cannot truly say why the neural net made the recommendation or decision it did, but we can build an interpretable model that kind of analyzes the neural net and tells us what it thinks is going on. And that's the whole area of you look at techniques um, like Lyme and many other techniques that are being proposed in uh, research settings in universities. They're all trying to figure out or analyze the decisions of a black box ML model and saying, well, you know, based on what I'm looking at, it looks like this system rejected this loan application primarily because of this person's address. And secondly, because of this person's education. And then suddenly you notice, hey, you know, it shouldn't be emphasizing the address that much. There's something wrong here. Uh, but I think interpretability is going to be extremely important, uh, especially in diagnosing and in testing a lot of these systems. So uh, I've actually uh, started to uh, dig through kind of this, uh, the literature for interpretability and ex- ex- explainability. And then I, I guess I, I, I realized, Kartik, that there's also kind of similar trade-off to the one you described, which is, I guess, in this field, when they use the term explainable AI, they refer to something that uh, is creating explanations that are both complete and interpretable. So the interpretable part is basically uh, something that is understandable by humans. And then the completeness part is basically, can you explain how this system behaves inside out, right? So to how much of the system's behavior can you actually explain? So I think, I guess, uh, in this area of research, they're thinking, you know, when you're building an explainable AI, well, there might be a trade-off between interpretability and completeness. Yes, I, I think there, there, there are so many trade-offs o- over here. I, I think, you know, it's also important to ask, you know, who is that interpretability for and what is the level of interpretability one needs? I think the level of interpretability one needs for a lay user might be very different than what might be needed for, say, uh, either for internal purposes or for regulatory purposes. And, you know, for uh, a user, it might just be saying, here are the five most important variables in this model that's doing credit approval or that's doing resume screening. And that could be at the global level, meaning at the aggregate, these are the five variables that matter the most for this model. Or it could be at a local level, meaning for your particular application, your loan was denied primarily because one, you're unemployed, and two, uh, education and so on. So I think that's very high level, but it's by no means complete. Then you go to that notion that I threw out there, which is completeness, where you can go into the model itself, know how the inner workings are, you can audit it, right? Yeah, and the auditor might need that completeness, but the end user might not. Right, uh, right, right. And, and so if based on who it is for, you might prioritize one over the other. So a lot of the things we talked about are things that don't fall under 
the umbrella of optimizing a statistical or machine learning metric, right? So necessarily, right? So as you said, algorithm designers have some kind of quantity metric that they shoot for and then they optimize for that. But then now we're, we're bringing in things like explainability, fairness, security and privacy, reliability and safety. And actually, last year, I started giving uh, talks around, around the topic of collecting all of these things and calling them risks. So the title of the talk I was giving was Managing Risk in Machine Learning. Yes. There's another term, actually, and I'm not sure, actually, if they're equivalent, but there's another term that I've come across called responsible AI. Hmm. So do you think that moving forward, Kartik, that there will be some notion of risk management in enterprise dedicated to machine learning and AI? I do think there will be a notion of uh, machine learning risk or model risk. And in fact, I've been using the term risks with algorithmic decision-making in some of my work as well. And in my meetings and talks with industry folks, I've been trying to evangelize this notion of uh, ML risk management or model risk management. And the idea is very much along the lines of what you said, and you, I know, covered it in your blog posts as well, which is this idea that well, you're optimizing on that one metric, but then there are potential risks. And so, for example, if it turns out that your credit scoring algorithm has a race bias, that's a huge reputational risk and a litigation risk for you. Or you have trading algorithms that are making trading decisions. You know, if if there's a rogue trade, that could cost you hundreds of millions of dollars if it's not properly controlled. And so there's lots of risks, different kinds of risks for different companies. And I think this will become an important area and many companies will need to think hard about it. In fact, uh, in 2008, when the financial crisis happened, regulation asked banks to set up uh, model risk management initiatives. And so this is not tied to machine learning per se, and we're talking here about old school models, uh, but many banks set up those kinds of divisions that are looking at you know, regression models and kind of thinking about their robustness and the use cases and how whether the data they're now seeing is different from the data that the algorithms were trained on and so on. Of course, as these banks are transitioning to machine learning systems, their model risk management methods will need to change. But this is no longer relevant just for banks. I think there's all kinds of risks that other companies are taking on as well as they move to this. Risks that can be managed, and but they have to actively think about ML risk management, something that hasn't been getting enough attention, I believe, but will become more and more important. So I think that if you accept the notion that machine learning comes with risks and you have to manage risks, I think that might actually change how you set up some of your data teams, your data science teams, right? So for one, uh, let's take uh, security and privacy. Well, uh, making sure your machine learning is secure and, uh, and privacy preserving that might entail skill sets that don't exist in your data team. You might need people with security skills, encryption, and, and things like that. And then uh, there's also uh, maybe you need people who are compliance officers on your team earlier on in the, in the process. Yes, I do think that companies will need two new capabilities in the organization. Today, in most companies, the data scientists and the data engineers who are creating the models are themselves validating the models. And validation typically is, again, just this idea of cross-validation on some data set that you've sort of held out and not used for training. And you evaluate the performance of the algorithm on that. But I think you will increasingly need 
other engineers who think of validation more from a risk standpoint. And they're thinking about almost in a game theoretic sense, in a way that security analysts... That's what I was saying. Like in security, the penetration testers, right? Exactly. So they're really just trying to think about how do I break this? And I think that's a new kind of capability. It's almost time to hack the ML model. And I think there's that skill that's that's going to be needed. And I think these have to be independent from the people who built the algorithm. Uh, again, the security analogy is, I think, accurate. So you have people designing the models, you're doing the validation and so on. And then you have another team that does independent validation, but they're looking at all these cases. They're thinking about fairness, bias. They're thinking about adversarial situations where this model might be deployed in. And then finally, you have the compliance and risk officers who are, you know, the guys with the ties and jackets who um, just ensure things are, you know, from a risk and compliance standpoint, checked off. Uh, and they're making, maintaining perhaps an inventory of all the models, the dependencies between these models. When was the last one stress tested and so on? By the way, uh, everything we talked about just now is hard to execute with a handful of models. So fast forward to a future where a typical enterprise will have hundreds, thousands, I don't know, millions of personalized models out in production. So we will need tools to make sure that the human auditors and security engineers and data scientists are able to wade through lots of data. So a certain level of automation, even for risk management of these things, is going to be needed. Yeah, I mean, I think this whole process can be managed if you've got five, 10 models with people. Right. Uh, but once you you know are talking about hundreds or even thousands of models, that's hard. And I think if you just look at even the large banks today, their model risk management efforts, it's mostly people doing it. Uh, and it's already getting to be way too expensive for them. Um, and I think as these models will only increase, not even linearly, but probably exponentially, uh, the costs are going to increase dramatically. You're going to need tools to manage a lot of this stuff. And I think, you know, there's going to be a need for a new class of software to man- manage ML risks. Uh, so let's close with, uh, I think this is the closing uh, uh, chapter of your bo- book, which you lay down what you call the algorithmic bill of rights, which one of the things I like about it is that there's four main parts and they all are, I don't think any of them are controversial at all. And so they might actually, even if they don't end up being required for companies to do, it's still a good reality check to go through these four pillars. So Kartik, why don't you uh, explain the motivation behind this and then walk us through quickly the four pillars? Yeah. So the algorithmic bill of rights, which is what I proposed in my book, A Human's Guide to Machine uh, Intelligence. So this is the final chapter where I'm trying to build bring together all the ideas on challenges with machine decisions. And I'm kind of proposing, you know, what's the way forward for companies, for data scientists, for people. And so I propose an algorithmic Bill of Rights. The motivation for this actually comes from the Bill of Rights in the U.S. Constitution. And the backdrop there is that when the founding fathers were trying to create the U.S. Constitution, some of them were worried that you are creating a powerful new entity with just too much power. And so you might be going from one form of tyranny to another form of tyranny. And so the Bill of Rights was a set of rights created for people to have protection from a powerful government. And the idea here is, of course, today, a lot of power is with technology and a lot of consumers feel helpless because you have these large, powerful companies 
that dominate their markets. If I wanted to switch to you know a different search engine, it's really hard to come up with a great alternative to Google or you know with social networks, a great alternative to say Facebook and so on. And so sometimes people feel helpless against the algorithms that are used by these companies. And so the Bill of Rights was, again, what are some basic things that consumers should expect and that firms should honestly provide as good practice? And so, and really this comes down to a few simple things. So as you mentioned, I had four main pillars to my Bill of Rights. The first one, and and really these pillars just boil down to transparency and control. So the first pillar is just transparency with regard to, you know, is an algorithm being used when a decision is made? And if, if so, what kinds of data does the algorithm have access to? Uh, pretty straightforward, you know, just being told that, hey, you applied for a loan, but by the way, this was a decision made by an algorithm and it looked at uh, only what you provided in this form or it looked at all this stuff and also looked at your social media posts. But just tell us what was used, what was the data used? The second is, again, transparency, but, but with regard to the procedures, used by the algorithm or, you know, the model explanations that we just talked about earlier. Actually, uh, for the second one, you use a phrase that now regulators are starting to use, which is the right to an explanation. I think the, I think the EU in kind in of, in, yeah, yeah, with GDPR is using this phrase, right? That's right. In GDPR, you use the phrase right to an explanation, and I've used a similar terminology or phrase in my book. And it's right to explanation regarding essentially what are the main factors that drove this decision. So that may be a black box algorithm, but give us those basic model explanations that we talked about earlier. What were the key variables that uh, received the highest weight in this decision? The third is some level of a feedback or ability to control the algorithm. And this is just about you know having the models be a little interactive. And so users can uh, share some feedback with the algorithm. I mean, look at, for example, Facebook's uh, news uh, newsfeed algorithm. You know, three years back, there was no way for me to give feedback to Facebook's algorithm and say this post had obscene content or this post is actually, I believe, false news. But after all the things that went wrong, Facebook now allows us with just two clicks to indicate that a certain news story shared in our newsfeed is false news. But that feedback is extremely important, uh, I feel. And I think, you know, companies should think about how do you design some feedback loop in this control system. And the last one, you know, I call it as a bill of right, but really it's a responsibility more than anything else. I kind of say that, look, the stakes are so high. I think you can talk about consumer rights, but there's also consumer responsibility, which is to understand how these systems work, to understand the unanticipated consequences of automated decisions and not be passive users anymore. You have to be active users where you sort of take note of what you're doing with the system, how is it changing your decisions, how is it affecting the decisions made about you, and so on. It's very straightforward things, uh, boiling down to transparency with regard to data, with regard to the uh, the uh, the actual rules of the algorithm or the weights of the algorithm, and finally, with regard to control that users have. So finally, so uh, let me have the final, final question here. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, uh, you wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review in 2017 with a controversial, with a kind of catchy title. The first wave of corporate AI is doomed to fail. So <laughs> yes. now we're two years later, Kartek, how do you feel about this article and uh, have your feelings changed? 
Well, uh, I'm feeling good about that article and my feelings <laughs> haven't changed. But let, <laughs> but, but let me clarify what I meant by that. It's certainly a sensational headline. And sometimes, you know, one does that to grab attention. Uh, but really what I was saying in the article is that I believe AI will be transformational in the same way that internet was transformational, in the same way that cloud computing and mobile computing were transformational. But in all of those instances as well, companies walked into these new technology trends because of fear of missing out, FOMO mentality. There was so much hype. They said, we've got to be in here as well, and we're committing a crazy amount of money, and we're announcing this new, big, ambitious AI initiative. And in all those instances, what happened was a year later, one and a half years later, they didn't have many results to show uh, despite their big announcements. And then many of them shut down those initiatives. You know, Kmart famously was one of the earliest offline retailers to have an online presence, but they shut it down. They actually shut it down after the dot-com bust. And then four years later, they realized, well, what a mistake we made shutting down our website, right? And of course, Kmart had to shut down. Similarly, with cloud computing, there were many banks, many healthcare companies that looked into moving their data to the cloud. And they said, wow, there are too many security issues. There are too many regulatory compliance issues. Let's move on. And they moved on. And then they regretted it because the companies who stuck with it actually did well. And I have the same feeling about AI. I talk to many CEOs. There's a lot of excitement, big initiatives, lots of hiring. They're paying you know, $2 million to hire this head of AI and so on. And that's great. But then you're expecting a lot within one or two years and you will be disappointed because you have this thing, uh, this uh, mental vision that AI is magical and it'll do all these amazing things. And it isn't. And mostly these executives don't understand what is AI and what is machine learning. And they are disappointed. And actually, in the last two years, many examples have played out. Two years back, most execs I asked, what are you doing with AI? Almost everyone said chatbots. You know, I talk to them now you know, what's going on with the chatbots. Some of them have shut down those initiatives. Some have said, you know, it's not working and so on. And that's because, you know, they expected, you know, the very first attempt to succeed. And I, I advocate, you know, do it slowly, steadily, consistently, hire steadily over time. And I think that'll play out well. So I do believe the first wave of AI, this set of AI will fail and they are failing. You know, IBM Watson is another example uh, where there was a lot of fanfare, but it didn't deliver. But long term, I believe it will succeed. So I'll stand by what I said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, uh, as a conference organizer and uh, someone who also talks to companies, what I emphasize is you've got to find good use cases and you've got to not underestimate the need for some foundational technology, right? Because at the end of the day, you still need data. So. So that's why I think, Kartik, I don't know how you feel, but the companies who seem to do well are the ones who already have some kind of data initiative in place, and then they layer on an AI capability on top of that use case, and then go from there, right? Yeah, I think some companies are trying to get into AI. They don't even have a data culture. They're just getting started with analytics. I think to succeed before an initiative succeeds, you've got to change the DNA of the organization. You've got to create data literacy statistical literacy in the organization so people know how to use data when to trust data insights where how to question data insights and all of that and then we can talk about okay here's my roi on this ai initiative uh, i think for a lot of companies your first two years is just changing organizational dna and then you should talk about roi after that uh, you know don't have bring the cfo in and measure uh, you know roi in year one or year two well 
this has been a great conversation and uh, thank you for joining us. Ben, thanks for having me. Just a reminder, many of the things that Kartik and I discussed in this episode are going to be covered extensively at the upcoming Strata Data London conference, which will be taking place in London in the UK in late April, early May. You can follow Kartik on Twitter at khosanagar. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.